Jesus was traveling from village to village and crowds were building. Uh, People wanted to hear what he had to say. He, He was an amazing teacher. And many men and women decided that this was the right way to go from now on. So crowds were following him. And one afternoon, a man stood up and asked Jesus a very direct question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? All eyes turned to Jesus. Everyone in that crowd knew what the man was asking about. He wanted to know how to have the kind of life which he saw that Jesus obviously had. He wanted to know where he could get that way of being in the world which Jesus and his followers had, that way of living that was so attractive because it was so clearly faith which worked. Faith which had transformed the individual on the inside so that they became what the world needed. How do I get life like that, he asked. Now, Jesus was a clever teacher. He never missed an opportunity to make an object lesson. He knew that this man understood the scriptures well. The person who asked about eternal life was someone who knew God's word. And so Jesus responded to his question with another question. What do you read in the law? He asked the man if he had some insight about where real life would come from, from his own experience of the scriptures. The man responded, this is in Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 27. Here's what he said there to Jesus in front of that crowd. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Real life comes from love. That man said that in front of everyone present. The place to get the life that you were meant for is in loving other people in putting yourself into being in relationship with your neighbor, the person who's right there beside you, in such a way that you could say that you loved them. Love your neighbor and love God, and then you'll have the life that you were meant to have. As an aside, I I know this about every one of you, even those of you who I've never talked to before. You personally are on the same search that drove that man that day to ask his question. You also want real life. You do. Uh, the, the way that your heart awakens and enlivens when you're in a group like this, when you see something purely good, when you come closer to God, that's your heart's way of telling you that what you were made for is real life, life now and on into eternity, life that is even stronger than death. And here this man says in front of the whole crowd of people that the answer is in love. That's where we'll have what we need. Jesus responds to him in front of everyone. And it would feel really good to have given an answer to which Jesus says what he does in Luke 10, 28. You have given the right answer. Whew, right? (laughs) And then he adds, do this and you will live. That's right out of Jesus' mouth. If you had to boil down all of the scriptures for this man and this crowd, that would have been what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, to boil it all down to a single word, love. Do love, and you personally will live. Now, Peter was there that day with Jesus and the rest of the disciples. He was taking notes. Later on, Peter would write letters to groups of men and women like us who were trying to find what real life looks like, who were trying to become what the world needs. And in Peter's second letter, and I believe 
uh, taking his clue from his time with Jesus, he offered the list of virtues which support faith, keeping it from being ineffective and unfruitful that we've been studying for these two months. He wrote that down, hoping to guide his readers into real life. And in his second letter, in 2 Peter 5, uh, excuse me, 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7, we've found what has been our touchstone for these last two months. Look again at how Peter put it. You must make every effort to support your faith with goodness and your goodness with knowledge and your knowledge with self-control and your self-control with endurance and endurance with godliness, and godliness with mutual affection. That's the love of friends, which we talked about last week, and your mutual affection with love. Peter put love, this particular kind of love, at the very bottom of the list, because the foundation of love between friends is built properly only when it's built on the bedrock of genuine Love, a different Greek word than the word for friendship. This word is the word agape in Greek. It is quite simply any act which is undertaken for the benefit of the other without regard for the cost it is to you or without any hopes of getting a reward for doing it. Love. The kind of love that sums up the whole law, the kind of love that made Jesus said very, say very simply, if you do this, you will live, is the kind of selfless benevolence toward the other which is undertaken not for your sake but entirely for her sake, altogether for his sake. An act of goodness which is not undertaken to earn some praise or earn some benefit for yourself even when it costs you more than you think you can afford. That's what love is. That's what's at the very bottom of all of the virtues which Peter has taught us to pursue in these months behind us. And that is, in that day, in front of that crowd, the single word which answered the question of that man, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How do I get real life? I get it by loving. I want you to pause for a moment on this story. And maybe you have a moment in your own memory where you benefited because someone did something for you that could only be described as an act of love. Do you have that in your mind? Uh, maybe it was something your mom did for you. Uh, maybe there was a day when your father, he did this thing that you saw and you thought, he loves me. I know that's not true for everyone here. But, but maybe it was a friend at school, a friend who did something so good for you. Or a stranger even did some act of kindness and grace and it gave your heart, even despite all of the hopelessness in the world, it gave your heart some hope. Do you have a memory like that? If you do, would you thank God in your heart for just a moment? And now imagine you're there in that crowd as this questioner led Jesus to say very simply, all you need is love. It's the only thing that you need. Love and you'll have life. And now that thought is settling down upon everyone. And now your eyes go back again to the man who asked that question to see how will he respond to Jesus' response. And in verse 29 of Luke 10, he speaks up a second time and he asks another question. And who is my neighbor? That question has a different tone and tenor than previous questions. You must love God and your neighbor. Well, who is my neighbor really? Do you see what the man's doing with this question? 
This is one of those questions which seeks to evade responsibility for what you've just now heard. This man has heard something far too simple from Jesus, and now he has to defend himself, and so he does so by drawing a line and asking very simply, who's on the side of the line that I'm responsible for? Because the challenge to love is already breaking upon his mind as something that may be too much for him. Who do I really have to love? He wants to know where the limits are. Now, as I've said, Jesus was a clever teacher. Because now, as everyone looks back at Jesus to see, how is he going to answer this question? After all, who am I responsible for loving? Because everyone in that crowd, including the questioner, had at least one person in their life who they were pretty sure they didn't have anything to do with except keep their distance from. Have you got someone like that in your life? Yes? It's okay to admit it. Surely not that person. Jesus does not answer the question directly, but instead he crafts a magnificent story. And chances are every single one of you will, will know this story from the title which has been given to it and which has been ad adopted into our popular culture. He tells the story that many of us know as the good, help me out here, Samaritan. The good Samaritan. Even Jerry Seinfeld knew about the good Samaritan. That's how, any Seinfeld fans? That's how it ended. A lot of people are up in the air about the ending of that show, but at least it referenced the Bible story. The story that Jesus tells in response to this man's question, listen now, is going to show us what love looks like. Not love as a sentiment, a feeling, but love as an action which is undertaken for the good of the other and is purely undertaken for that reason. That's what true love is. That's what Agape love is. And that's what's at the bottom, like the bedrock is at the bottom of a skyscraper. It's the thing which will hold up everything we've talked about in these weeks behind. And what I want for you more than anything else this morning, and it's really true uh, that I want this more than anything that I've taught in the past two months, is for you to see what love looks like. Because you have no idea how much God loves you. And because that's true, you have no idea how much power each one of you individually has to be what the world needs. How much power, especially, we have as a church altogether to be built by God so that we have a faith which is effective and fruitful that will change the world. And I totally believe that. Here's how the story which Jesus tells in response to that question, who is my neighbor after all, begins. This is Luke chapter 10, verse 30. Here's how Jesus responds. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him for dead. Now there's the setting of Jesus' story, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Everyone who was listening would have immediately heard the name of the most dangerous travel route that anyone could introduce into a story. 18 miles, 3,200 feet in elevation change, from Jerusalem to Jericho, the road wound through the mountains and the deserts, and it was known as the way of blood. 
because it was such a difficult and isolated road that it was a favorite haunt of robbers and bandits, opportunists, who waited along that road that many people had to travel so that they could use their force and power to overthrow those who were unfortunate enough to have to go that way. And in Jesus' story, we meet the first character. It's a man who had no choice but to go on that road, and now he's found himself overwhelmed by a malevolent force that is greater than he, which has dehumanized him, beat him down and left him in such a condition that unless he gets help soon, his future is certain. He will die on that road. That's the setting of Jesus' story. Now, the truth about the life that you and I find ourselves in is that it is always like that road. I almost said just now that it is sometimes like that road. But the truth is, The road is always a metaphor in the Bible for what life is like. And when Jesus starts his storytelling about a dangerous road on which there are lots of hazards, which often is too much for someone as it is for this man, he's thinking about the personal life experience of everyone who's listening to his story. And what Jesus knows is that for everyone, sometimes life is like the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Is that true for anyone in here right now? I don't expect you to answer out loud. Hasn't it been true for some of you in the, in the past that life is like a road that is dangerous and too much for you and the circumstances that come up against you, they overwhelm you, leaving you for dead? I remember in high school, that's what life was like for me. In high school, I was five foot two my senior year and I weighed 97 pounds. Everyone in high school made sure I knew that every day. They called me peewee. And I, I laughed because it was the only response I had, but life for me then was really hard. Uh, and, and adults, do you know how much harder it is for the adolescents in our lives now because of the internet? At any second, someone can beat them up and leave them for dead. It's awful. Then you get done with high school and you get your first job and it's like a band of robbers has beaten you up and stripped you down and left you for dead because the job is not what you hoped. Anyone have that experience? Yeah, if your boss is here, don't shout out, yes. And then you get in a relationship and you put your hopes on this person to love you and they turn out to be someone else and the whole thing blows up and falls apart and you're on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, left half for dead. Or your friendships turn sour and people who you trusted betray you and now you're left on the road half for dead. Your children who are adults start turning out very differently than you wish they would. They're going down paths that you don't want them to go down and you cannot stop them from going down. And so on and so on. All of us will know in this room what it's like to be on the Jericho road. And if not now, someday you will know. And that's how Jesus' story begins. There's a man who's in trouble and he needs help. Okay, remember, this is gonna be a story that's gonna teach us what love looks like. And love is not just a sentiment for Valentine's Day. It is the bedrock upon which real life is built. Now in Jesus' story, with this man beat up and left half for dead, there are three characters who he introduces one at a time. In verse 31, we meet the first character. Now, here's how the story continues. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. A priest is a professional religious figure. The crowd that Jesus was teaching would have grown up knowing exactly what priests were supposed to do. Uh, They were men who worked in the temple at Jerusalem and their job was to bring people into the presence of God. 
And that's the very best place that any one of us can be, close to God. Because when we're close to God, we are close to the source of all life. We're close to the one who made us. We're close to the one who crafted us for some good purpose in the world and who loves us more than we could dare to dream or even imagine. And now a priest comes along the road and Jesus' listeners are expecting, ah, here's what the man needs, a person who represents God officially. Surely he'll help this man in his plight. But instead of going toward the man, the priest goes away from him and crosses by on the other side of the road. And here is disappointment. Because the man who's responsible for bringing people into God's presence is supposed to be helpful to us when we're in our need, but he's not here. And, and here's an aside for us today. Do you know that sometimes the church fails in its central mission of helping people and instead harms people who come into its presence? Do you all know that? It's one of the sad and gutting facts that often those who are supposed to be trusted turn out to be untrustworthy. That's the first character that comes along the road, a second character in Jesus' story. This is verse 32. So, likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Anyone who knew the Old Testament scriptures, as the questioner would have, knows that the, the tribe of the Levites, those are the men who are responsible for becoming priests, and those who are Levites, like the priests, are also professionally responsible uh, for people and God. The Levites were the ones who carried the Ark of the Covenant, from place to place, when the people of God had a battle, they carried the presence of God to the people. Almost the opposite thing of what the priests did who brought people into God's presence. The Levites were supposed to bring God into the presence of the people in the ark. If you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know what this looks like. <laughs> this man also, you would expect to be helpful to the person who's been overwhelmed by life's emergencies but instead he goes by on the other side too. Now in that crowd at this moment, perhaps some of the people were already picking up on the figurative nature of Jesus' story. And they were in touch with their own wounds. And maybe some of them thought, yeah, you know, the priests, the Levites, they've given me some things to do that worked for a bit, but nothing's really ever changed it deep down inside. And I know for sure that some of you are in that same place. You've been there in the past or you're there right now or you will be in the future. And you have a need. You do, you need something. And, and many of us will have it in our minds a strategy that will meet our needs. My son will be okay. I'll be able to let go of the pain from my father finally. I'll be able to get along with my brother and my sister in the way that God wants me to. We have all of these thoughts in our minds about what will make us well. I'll meet Mr. Right. I'll meet uh, that perfect woman and she'll complete me. You had me at, hello, is that, what's that movie? You complete me. It's a very old movie, never mind. But what we all need, listen, it's exactly the same thing. We need love. It's what the whole world needs. It's what every one of you needs. You need it. And here, the third character is introduced in Jesus' story. And this is a character that shows us what love actually looks like. This is verse 33 in chapter 10 of Luke. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. Hold on, before I continue, you must know what everyone would have heard when they heard the word Samaritan. 
that crowd would have assumed that that must have been the person who did the robbing because Samaritans were a race that was suspect to all of Jesus' hearers. Jesus' disciples, in fact, one day, while he was passing by a Samaritan village with them, they asked Jesus, hey, do you want us to um, destroy this village for you? Would you like us to do that? That was the attitude that people had about Samaritans. And so you have a priest and a Levite, these religious figures of trustworthiness for those hearers who had not yet given what was needed. And now you have a suspicious character, a Samaritan who's going down the road. But listen to how he responds to this man's need. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him. It's the exact opposite of the priest and the Levite who went away from him. And he bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. And then he put him on his own animal. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Here in Jesus' story comes a character who brings exactly what the man on the road needs. A character who a character who behaves in a way that certainly was not what any of the listeners had expected having heard that he was a Samaritan. But once they got over that shock, a character who pictures for everyone who's listening exactly what love looks like. Not the feeling, but the action. The action which Peter himself put at the very end of his list of virtues. The one if we personally are willing to work at. As Peter put it, if we're willing to make every effort to support all the other virtues with this final virtue, agape, true love, then we will find ourselves experiencing a faith which genuinely transforms us personally. Then you will have a faith which has an effect on you like you know it ought to have an effect on you and it will make our faith fruitful in the world around. All you need is love. What the world needs now is love. The greatest of all of the gifts which God calls us to receive and then reflect back in the world is not faith, it's not hope, but according to the Apostle Paul, it is love. If only we would learn to love like we see here, then the world would finally have what it needs. What do we see when we look at the way the Samaritan behaved? The answer to that question will show us what we need to learn about how to love in the world right now. And I found, as I've dwelt on this story, five pictures that are very plain that show us what love does. And I want to take our time here because I want to learn from this unlikely character in Jesus' story. I want to learn what love looks like so that you personally have guidance for how to do the greatest thing, which is love. Now, the contrast between the way the Samaritan behaves and the priest and the Levite behave gives us the first picture that shows us what love does. And here it is, love takes responsibility. If you would just imagine in your mind that man broken there on the road who has nothing but his problems and then ask the question, strictly speaking, who do the problems belong to? Well, of course, they belong to that man who's broken and beaten up on the road. So that the priest could come by and say, I have my own responsibilities to manage right now. I have lots of things that are very important. I have to get uh, to the opera house to deliver a message. I can't be bothered with this right now. And so with that reasoning, the priest passed by. And same with the Levi, Levite, but not the Samaritan. 
The Samaritan loves by choosing to take responsibility for a problem which, strictly speaking, is not his, but rather this other man's. And what love looks like is when it sees that need there, which is someone else's fault, instead of asking who to blame, love asks the question, how can I personally take responsibility in this particular moment to bring what's needed. And with that question in mind, the Samaritan goes toward that one in need. Would you picture right now in your own life where there are some troubles around you that you strictly are not responsible for? Would you picture some? It might be your spouse or your children or your friends or your neighbors. Now, I'm not gonna advocate going on and getting involved in every single mess that you could possibly get involved in, okay? Because sometimes you shouldn't. But what love does first, before asking whose fault is it, or before asking who's gonna take care of that, is it asks, how can I possibly be involved in a solution here? And we see that in the Samaritan who goes toward the need rather than away from it. Okay, do some of you in here have needy friends and when they start opening up their needs, you are heading for the hills? Yeah? Maybe love will make you stay put for a moment to see if you can go toward rather than away from the need because love takes responsibility. That's the first thing I see in this story. Now, there's a second thing uh, that shows us very plainly what love does, and that is in what happens with the Samaritan once he gets close to the traveler, and that is this. Love gets its hands dirty. This man had been wounded. He was losing blood so that soon he will die. And there in the hot desert sun, as, as the wounds have begun uh, to clot and fester, he needs first aid. And that's gross. I saw someone say gross. Yeah, it's gross. Sometimes love is gross. Can we say that? Ser I mean, seriously. He gets out his oil and he pours it on the wound and he does that to loosen it up. And so that means he has to massage the, the wounds of this stranger with oil. And then he pours wine. It has some alcohol in it so that it will be like an antiseptic. But in, unless he does that, unless he goes down and gets his hands dirty, this man on the road is doomed and this second fact of what love is like also ought to be a very practical lesson for all of us gathered here. And that is that love often means getting your hands dirty. Okay, a friend comes over and begins to open up about the state of his marriage and how ugly it is. And it's a mess. And then you have both of them over to your house. And now they start to unfold what life has become like for them and it's hitting the fan and it's getting all over everybody, including you. And it's hard. But the friend stays there and loves because love does not run away when it gets messy. And I, I'm telling you, every one of you in here will have your opportunity, if we're willing to be real with each other, to get your hands messy as you do the work of love. And that's what the Samaritan does. He gets down on his hands and knees for this stranger and begins to heal the wounds. That's the second thing that love does. And now there's a third. And this one... It, it, it requires your imagination, but did you hear what the Samaritan did after healing the wounds of the man? He put him on his own animal. The animal that up until that point, the Samaritan had been using to traverse this dangerous road, this 18-mile journey. And here we see this third thing which love does, which is that love trades places. The Samaritan had the benefit and the ease that comes with owning an animal that he could ride on. And here this man, who has been beat up and left for dead, is in trouble, and what the Samaritan does is he chooses 
to set aside his own benefit for the sake of the other. So this man who needs it more than he can actually have what he requires to have the life that he needs. The Samaritan literally changed places with him. You see that? And I'm gonna tell you right now, if you work at loving the people around you, sometimes it will make your life less easy than it had been before. I'm not gonna get up here and tell you that if you love, then everything for you and them will always be better because true love, love which is not just a feeling but rather is the act of benevolence for the sake of the other so that they benefit no matter what it calls uh, you to do, will often mean that you have to change places so that you are lower than you used to be in order to lift that other. Have any of you experienced that before? Someone taking a lower place so that you could have the higher one? That's the third thing which love does here. And, And it's not the last. Because after they switch places, the Samaritan leads this man all the way to the inn at the end of the road And then, listen now, he gets his own money out and he gives it to the innkeeper. And here he shows us this fourth thing about love. Love costs you. If what you want, when you hear me talk about how the world needs love, is to get something for yourself, your heart has not yet been taught by the master of love, Jesus. And if you want to know what love is and you want to learn from Jesus, This fourth thing is absolutely critical for you to grasp. Love will cost you something. You will have to spend some of what you have if you are going to have the real life that Jesus made you to have. If you're going to love other people, it's gonna cost you something. Practically speaking, it may mean that you have to pay for a few nights for another person at an inn. And that's what the Samaritan does. And not only does he do that, but then he also says to the innkeeper, look, I'm paying you to take care of him. And what I'm gonna ask you to do is if he has to stay a lot longer than either one of us anticipate right now, is trust me that I'm gonna come back and whatever else it costs, I'll also pay for that. And this is the fifth thing about love. It is that love commits Love is not a thing which comes in one day and does some good deed and then goes and wipes its hands of that person and on to the next thing. We see this with clarity from the Samaritan. He makes a deal with the innkeeper and the deal is if this guy ends up costing a lot more than the two denarii I've given you, which is two days work, that's what a denarii is, what it costs you to work, what you earn in working for one day. If it costs more than that, I'm on the hook for whatever else you need to spend. This also is a picture of love. The commitment to be benevolent to the other is one that lasts into the future, which strictly speaking, you don't know. And that's here as well. We have have no idea yet what it's going to cost to get this man well, and neither does the Samaritan. But that does not stop him from doing what love does. All five of these. Love takes responsibility. It gets its hands dirty. It trades places. It costs something and it commits over time. Now I want you, with those five in your mind, to bring yourself back to the scene where Jesus has just unfolded this story for the questioner. And I want you to bring into this moment your own experience of life as you live it now in 2017, where you yourself are quite dissatisfied with many elements of the world in which you live. I know you are. And you yourself and your conscience have been asking, how can I become a bit more of what the world needs? And now you've heard this story and you've seen the Samaritan who shows us what love looks like. 
And now your imagination is meant to ask, how can I perhaps begin to take steps like that with the people in my world to love them like that? How can I do it? Now that thought is settling in upon the crowd. While, while each person, including the questioner, is beginning to unfold the implications of Jesus' story. And then he says to the crowd this. This is verse 36. He says it to the questioner, but really to the crowd. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Now you remember that the question which prompted the story was, well, who really is my neighbor? Who am I supposed to take responsibility for? And after unfolding his story, Jesus turns the question to us and says, who do you think is who in this story? What he's asking every one of us to do is to use our imagination so that we might grasp how Jesus, listen to this, how Jesus has painted the man who asked the question into his story. We're very quick when we hear the story of the Good Samaritan to think, I think that's somebody who's supposed to help someone fix a flat tire on the side of the road. That's what the Good Samaritan is. That's a very, very shallow understanding of Jesus' story. A deeper understanding takes Jesus seriously when he asks, who do you think? And I want you now to wonder, who do you think is who in this story? I'm telling you right now that that man who asked Jesus about eternal life has been painted by Jesus very cleverly into the story. And he's not the Good Samaritan. And he's not the priest either. And he's not the Levite either. Because the man who asked the question, listen now, is in trouble and he doesn't know why yet. Look carefully at the motivation behind his question. It was recorded in verse 30, uh, let's see. It was recorded in verse 30, or excuse me, 29. There we read before Jesus' story, but wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? That phrase, justify himself. Anyone who reads the New Testament knows that every single man and woman who tries to justify himself or herself before God is as likely to succeed as a man who is beat up and left for dead on the Jericho Road is able to drag himself or herself all 18 miles while losing blood. The Bible puts it very plainly. Every one of us is justified by God's grace and not by our own works. And when Jesus heard this man ask, who am I supposed to love? And knew that the man was trying to figure out how he could make himself right before God, decided to paint a story in which he pictures that questioner there on the road dead and about to die unless he gets help from another. And this is the truth about every single one of us. And you must understand this if you will ever become what the world needs apart from the grace of God, which comes and delivers you, you are dead. Life will utterly destroy you. All of the things that come up against you day in and day out will overwhelm you unless you get help. And that's where Jesus has painted his picture so that the questioner is in it. And do you know who else Jesus put in the story? He put himself in the story. He did. And we know this because the other detail we have about one of the characters, the good Samaritan, is that, and this is verse 29, uh, this is verse 33, that when the Samaritan was traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. 
That means the reason the Samaritan went toward that man is because he was moved with pity. The verb which is used there by Luke is a strange verb, splankizomai. It's only used four times in the New Testament. It's used here of the good Samaritan. It's used in a parable that Jesus told when he talked about a father who had two sons. Does some of you know that parable? We know it as the parable of the prodigal son. When the father saw his son at a distance, he was moved with pity, splankizomai. It's also used of the king that forgives a great debt of a person who can't own it because he feels pity for him. Splankizomai. Only one time in the entire New Testament is the word used of a person. It's when Jesus comes to Jerusalem and he sees the people as if they are sheep without a shepherd and he is moved with pity. The verb means it tears up his guts inside because when he sees the need of another person, it goes right into the center of him and it tears him to shreds. The good Samaritan is a self-portrait of Jesus. And who Jesus is, listen, he's the one who did not stay far off, but instead came on the road that you have to walk on and I have to walk on. And he's the one who, when he sees us on the road, which is our lives, broken and ruined, who does not keep his distance, but instead comes up close because Jesus is the one who loves us, which means he takes responsibility for us. And then Jesus is the one who comes right up to you in your misery and he gets his hands dirty with the mess that you personally caused. And the reason that Jesus does that is he wants to heal the deepest wound that ruins you and keeps you from real life. And when his hands get dirty, he gets busy. Listen now, he gets busy trading places with you. And this is the most profound picture of love that we have in the New Testament. Jesus, who was rich, became poor for our sake. Jesus, who was free, became imprisoned so that we could be free. Jesus, who was completely and utterly innocent, became guilty with our sins so that we ourselves could be righteous before God. Jesus, who was alive, died on the cross so that you yourself could become alive. And that is how the good Samaritan loved by trading places. And that's what Jesus has done for you. And do you know that the love of Jesus cost him something? It cost him the most agonizing and terrifying death imaginable, death abandoned from God the Father. And this is the last thing. Listen, Jesus Christ is committed to you forever. He's come right down to the place where we are and said with his life, whatever it costs to redeem this person, I'm in it for the long haul. I will never, ever give up on them. Jesus will never give up on you. And here's the truth. Here it is. You have been loved and the only reasonable response to being loved as you have been loved is to turn and love others. And that is exactly what the world needs. And it's exactly what will make faith work. At the very end of the story, here's how Jesus closes the story. <clears throat> Jesus said to him and to everyone, go and do likewise. And what Jesus means here is very simply, since I, this is Jesus, since I am the good Samaritan who has rescued you, now all I want is for you to go and love others. This is what the world needs. It needs us to go and love because we have been loved. Uh, let's pray. God, I thank you for the love with which you have loved each one of us. I thank you that without regard for the cost to yourself, without any hope of rewards for you personally, you have emptied yourself so that you could love us. God, I 
ask for each and every man and woman in this place who is on the road somewhere that is too much for them, that they would feel your presence there with them, that they would open themselves to be healed by you, and that then they would allow you to carry them to the place where they can be renewed. God, help every one of us own the gift that you've given in Christ and transform us so that we can become together what the world needs. I pray for this in the name of Jesus, the one who loves us completely. In his name, amen.